One thing that I'm really grateful for is that when lockdown was imposed because of the pandemic, I happened to be here in the UK, in the house where I grew up, our family home. And every day in the middle of the day, I take a short break. I take the ancient dog for a little walk. And then I take my very small lunch, half a bit of toast and a bit of cheese. And I sit underneath the beech tree that I used to climb when I was a child. Every day except four since lockdown began, I've been joined there by a little robin, a robin breadbreast, the kind, you know, that we have in England. And sometimes when I'm lucky, he sings to me. So very often we do a sort of duet. I sing a few lines of some kind of childhood song and then pause and he sings a little bit and pauses and I sing a little bit. And it's so absolutely charming. I take him a small amount of Robin food. He doesn't eat much. Sometimes he doesn't eat any. He seems to come because he likes the duets that we sing. Changing mindsets and opening hearts about Mother Earth. Our planet is a gift. I believe in the collective efforts of everyone. I believe that everyone can make a difference. I aspire to change the world too because of the hope she gave me. She devoted her life together. Together we can, together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today, I'm lucky enough to be sitting down with John Scanlon, someone who works relentlessly to protect the natural world. John has dedicated his life to ensuring the safety and conservation of countless species of plants and animals. He was most recently the Secretary General of the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. And today, he serves as Special Envoy for African Parks. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with John Scanlon. John, really, I'm so thrilled to welcome you to this Hopecast and to hear you talking about issues that are so tremendously important today, and that's ways to curb wildlife crime. I think we've got an awful lot of things to talk about. I hope to learn an awful lot from you during this conversation about how we can change some of the wildlife legislation so that it's possible to actually prosecute some of these criminals who are destroying our children's future. So I'm really happy that you're joining us for this Hopecast. Thanks, Jane. And it's a a great pleasure and an honour to be invited to join you. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation and really grateful for the fact that you're showing interest in it. So what can we do, John, to try and slow down and then halt this this illegal trafficking. Yeah, thanks, Jane. It's uh, it's really tragic what we see happening. Um, the illicit trafficking in wildlife has such a devastating impact on species, on ecosystems, on local communities. And we had a World Bank report last year that was very interesting because for the first time it looked at the full cost of illicit trafficking in wildlife. And that is it looked at the cost to governments, they lose a lot of revenue. It looked at the impact on the ecosystem and it looked at the value of the contraband itself. And it valued it at one to $2 trillion a year. 
because it recognised for the first time that this illicit trafficking in wildlife, of wild animals and plants, is degrading ecosystems and their ability to mitigate climate change, to produce fresh water, fresh soil. So they put a true value on it. Now we've had this COVID-19 pandemic, and it's reminded us all in such a devastating way of the interrelationship between wildlife, people, and our public health. They didn't even look at that issue. Um, here we have COVID-19. Its origins are most likely in wildlife, but we know of previous pandemics, the origins were in wildlife, whether it's SARS or MERS, or whether it's HIV AIDS. And if we look into the future, the IPBS recent report tells us there's 1.7 million viruses that have yet to be discovered, of which half they think could spill over to people. So we really need to change the way we're doing things. There's an enormous cost to, to local communities as well, isn't there? Because very often they lose their livelihoods. They're driven to poaching in order to survive. And they'll get punished, probably. But the international crime gangs, well, I suppose corruption plays a big role, doesn't it? That's right. And local communities are the ones missing out in this. It is actually the transnational organised criminal groups they are profiting off the back of uh, local communities. And basically, they are taking the natural assets of these local communities, depriving them of them, and putting them into a poverty spiral. Locals are not benefiting from this illicit trafficking in wildlife. Maybe one or two are. The profits are going offshore. They're leaving a degraded environment, an impoverished community that's often been infiltrated through people corrupting uh, officials along the way. So it's really a devastating thing, right from a local level for local communities, local people, local wildlife, right up to the global level when you look at the impacts on climate change, etc. And, um, you know, one thing we have to do, it's really clear that to find alternative ways of making a living for the local community so that they don't have to succumb to these bribes. And so they come to understand that protecting their local environment is not just for wildlife, but it's for their own future. They, they need to save the environment. Yeah, we really do have to look at um, this interrelationship between people, their livelihoods and wildlife. And there is a direct connection there. And we have seen, as you said, through well-managed wildlife tourism, great benefits flow to local communities. Uh, it's generating jobs, as generating uh, opportunities. And there are all the industries around tourism as well, the catering, all the infrastructure, all of the growing of food, you know, local produce. And when we manage protected areas well, we generate all that local employment through rangers, through guides and everything else. And the sad thing is, as you said, we've seen this drop off. It, it didn't just slow down, it, it fell off the edge of a cliff with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we've been, you know, caught out there, but we have to keep investing. And if, if we look at wildlife, not just as wildlife and the benefits of wildlife itself, wildlife is about protecting biodiversity and everything it does for us. It's about combating climate change. It's about public health and stopping the next pandemic. It's about development and local jobs, and it's about security, you know, where places are well-managed, generating local jobs, they're secure places. So if we can take that broader view of wildlife, we should be getting investment from all of these different sectors into wildlife to maintain these places. 
And I think, you know, governments who are beginning to understand the value of wildlife. I mean, it's really sad that we somehow need to put a value on, on wildlife. But from standpoint of somebody living in poverty, you can understand it, a government that's heavily in debt. Tourism brings in foreign exchange, which makes the central government happy. And then, as you say, the, the local communities can benefit in many, many different ways. Also, a better understanding of why it's important for them. Once they have a way of making a living without resorting to poaching or, you know, it's it's the whole spectrum of biodiversity that's at stake from this illegal trafficking. No, absolutely. And it's such a wide variety of species. And it's those that are protected under international laws and those that are not. We only protect 36,000 of 8 million species. And yet this same World Bank report shows us that this illicit trafficking is affecting a huge range of plant species, in particular timber and fish species, that don't enjoy any specific international protection, but they're being pillaged in, in such huge numbers that it's having such a devastating impact, not only on the plant, the animal, the ecosystem, but on the people that could benefit from them if you were exploiting them in a, in a sustainable way, the timber and the fish. You know, if you do that sustainably, there's a lot of local benefit. When crime comes in, they take everything now for themselves and leave nothing for anyone else. So we really, really need to get this under control. So what I'm anxious to hear from you is what are the plans to change some of this legislation to make it tougher, to perhaps introduce more species and protect them legally as well? Yeah, thanks, Jane. And 10 years ago or so, we launched a consortium called the International Consortium on Combating Wildlife Crime. And it was CITES, I signed for CITES, it was Interpol, UN Office of Drugs and Crime, World Bank and World Customs, because we all recognised that we were facing a surge in illegal trade at that time, in particular as it affected elephant and rhino, and we weren't able to deal with it effectively. So that consortium did a lot of good work. We just had the 10th anniversary but what we recognise on the 10th anniversary is despite everything we're doing, it's not enough. We are continuing to see a surge in illegal trade, in particular as it affects some species. The pangolin was given highest protection under CITES, yet we've got the highest level of poaching and smuggling. We see timber species, we see fish species and many others facing a huge surge in trafficking. So we have to reflect for a moment and say, is the system good enough or do we need to scale this up? And the reality is we need to change because to date what we've done is relied very heavily upon CITES, the Wildlife Trade Convention, to provide the legal framework. And that was done in the absence of anything else. There was no other instrument to turn to. So by default, we turned to CITES, but we've really exhausted the mandate at that convention. And why? It's because it's a trade-related convention, not a crime-related convention. It was never designed to deal with wildlife crime. It obliges breaches of the convention to be penalised, not criminalised. It doesn't deal with poaching. It only deals with cross-border movement. And it only relates to species that are included in its appendices, of which there are 36,000 of 8 million species. So it's only got a small subset. And they only get listed when they're already severely threatened. We have this sort of um, ambulance approach to protecting a species. You know, when it's really, you know, close to dying, we list it. We need to look at all species, whether threatened or not, to make sure that they don't find themselves in the ambulance. So it shouldn't be okay to steal any 
wild animal plant or any country, whether it's endangered or not. So we need to change the framework. What we need to do is have, for the first time, a, a global agreement on uh, combating and preventing wildlife crime. And we can do that. We have a UN convention called the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime. It sets the general framework for dealing with transnational organized crime. And there are three protocols. They are sub-agreements under that convention on human trafficking, migrant smuggling, and firearms. We need a fourth protocol that deals directly with wildlife crime, the trafficking in all fauna and flora. And what we can do through that is to say what conduct is criminalized, to say how we're going to cooperate with one another to deal with demand reduction and to share information on known trafficking routes, known organized crime groups, share information on forensics and work together on technical and capacity building support, et cetera. But we need to embed this issue into the international criminal law framework because it's a crime issue, not a trade issue. This is about serious organized crime. And that's what we need to do. And, and we can do it. We know exactly what we can do. We have to see if we can generate the, the sort of political will that's needed, because this is about countries agreeing amongst each other to carry this idea forward. Well, John, I don't know, I've seen so many of these agreements where people agree and they sign legislation, but corruption somehow manages to knock it down. They creep around the corner. But step number one, yes, is to get it in there, to get to get that made as a as a crime. That definitely is step number one. And after that, the enforcement of it and the prosecution. And this protocol, and we've drafted one. We've worked with an excellent law firm, Arnold and Porter, to draft a protocol to show exactly what it could look like. And one of the important things it does is it not only protects species protected under international law, but under a country's own domestic law. And what it does is require mutual respect for each other's laws. So that if you take any wildlife from a source country, bring it into a destination country. If you're caught at the destination country, it is a criminal offence in the destination country to have brought in that wildlife other than in accordance with the, the laws of the source country. So it's making it much harder. You might get out of the source country, but at the destination country, you face a criminal prosecution for having done that, showing respect for each other's laws. That puts a lot of pressure on those who are trafficking, that they have to run the gauntlet twice. And it would apply to any wildlife that's protected under national law, not just those protected under, under international law. It would provide a, a much stronger framework. Yeah, I, I see horrific situations arising where animals are are sent out, but they're not allowed in. And unless we get lots of sanctuaries of people who know how to look after them, it's going to be absolutely dreadful. It's bad enough now. Confiscated animals often have nowhere to go. And I know that sometimes they're given to organizations that are not exactly very, uh, very transparent, and then they just get sold on again. So it is another problem, isn't it, to have places where confiscated wildlife can be put and looked after. You're absolutely right. And uh, I remember visiting a very good uh, facility in the Netherlands several years back where they were actually servicing a large part of the European Union for animals, live animals that had been confiscated and seized in illegal trade. Because as you scale up that effort, 
you actually have to have somewhere where you can care for those live animals in trade. And they're often a forgotten part of this whole chain of dealing with the criminality. You have to have them. Otherwise, you can have customs officers that just leave it alone. It's a little bit too difficult to know what to do with this. They need to have confidence that they can seize, confiscate, and there's a rescue centre that these animals can go to. Some zoos actually uh, play a very important role there as well. Yes, they do. You know, the other thing, which, of course, I always come back to, is we've just been talking about trafficking. You know, from my research with chimpanzees and from all of the most recent uh, scientific research into animal behavior, there's ample proof that all these animals are sentient beings. They feel fear. They feel pain. They're individuals. So it's causing immense suffering to billions of, of sentient animals. I mean, this, the, if you try and think collectively of the suffering, it's, it's so overwhelming. Yeah, and it's enormous suffering because uh, it's all done illegally. So they're trying to hide what they're doing. These animals get uh, put into dreadful conditions to try and hide them during this illegal trade. Many of them will die in the process. So it's a very sad situation from every perspective, every angle you look at it. I was part of a, a rescue of some African grey parrots. And after a lot of rehabilitation and many dying, of course, some of them are now actually breeding in the wild. It was very exciting to pull the string and watch them come out for the first time into the big wilderness. Now, there are some wonderful stories like that. Too few, but there are lovely stories about how animals can be rescued and brought back to the wild, which is lovely to see. But as you said, so many die en route or through the process. And if they're not recovered through being detected at customs, how many do we know are going to a destination somewhere else? I mean, you read about the tons of pangolin scales, just the scales. You think of the number of pangolin. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. It's horrible. That is mind-boggling. And um, I've been, uh, I've never seen a wild pangolin. They're, they're quite difficult to, to see in the wild. The poachers and smugglers have found them in such big numbers. It is a horrific number, the number of animals that have been found in legal trade, either their scales or their meat or as live animals. It's a tragic fate that they're suffering at the moment. I've just written a book for children for China, and it's about to be published in, in Chinese. The young people, particularly in China, they really are beginning to get a feeling for animal welfare, which didn't really exist when I first worked there in the mid-90s. So it is changing. I've certainly had the good fortune to do quite a lot of work in China, and I think um, I share your view that you do see an attitudinal shift. Uh, I certainly worked very closely with them on the whole ivory trade issue and uh, met with Vice Premier Wang Yang there, did the first ivory crush in Dongzhuan, China, 2014. Hangzhou uh, did the, the first event we did on demand side issues of ivory, and then the first closure of markets in Beijing in 2017. And there was a clear shift in attitude there. I think with the younger generations I spoke to there, including Hong Kong, SAR, uh, a, a different attitude towards animal welfare and animals that uh, I was detecting. And they've certainly gone hard in terms of wildlife and captive breeding in response to this COVID-19 pandemic. 
It's another reason why we do need to scale up our enforcement effort, because as you just said, Jane, if we put in place greater restrictions, either nationally or internationally, because we think wildlife trade laws should also be amended to uh, regulate trade on public health grounds, not just on conservation grounds, but also look at the public and animal health implications of the trade. At the moment, we just look at conservation. But as there are more restrictions, we can't just let it dive underground. So we have to scale up the enforcement effort. And we're not going to stop pandemics if we stop it in one country, two country, but there's three, four, five, 10, 20 others that are doing it. So we do need this global approach to wildlife trade to look at it through a One Health lens, conservation, public health, animal health, look at it all together. It will put in place greater restrictions, then scale up the enforcement and have this agreement amongst states on wildlife crime, how we agree to combat it and prevent it together. There are so many reasons, as we were saying before, to do that now, biodiversity, climate change, development, public health, security. We can't in good conscience leave the next generation with the system that we're living with today when we know that it's not fit for purpose. It was great 50 years ago, but it's not great now. The silver lining of this pandemic is that it has woken people up and it will help wildlife trafficking. So we've been working really hard, you know, through JGI's Roots and Shoots program, we've been working on the demand side of it. Because if you can work on the demand side, if people don't want these things anymore, if people don't want ivory and they, they realize that rhino horn and pangolin scales are like eating our fingernails, um, then you know that will be a big help the other end of it. So there's the legislation, there's the, the sort of humanitarian side of it, and then there's the demand. We have to look right across that illegal supply chain from better protecting its source, providing uh, local opportunities, local employment, all the way through to the demand side to suppress the demand. The challenge we face is that with some of these animals and plants, there are so few left, it only takes a tiny percentage of a population to wipe out an entire species. So... The challenge we confront there is it only needs such a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall population to want to get access to these animals and plants illicitly, and it can cause such uh, misery for everybody. So a big part of demand reduction is, is what you're talking about is changing attitudes, a new generation thinking of these things differently. But then there's also those that won't change, and they need to feel the hard arm of the law, the long arm of the law. That's that's the demand reduction strategy for some of these individuals that won't shift their behaviour. Absolutely. And if they won't shift their behaviour, they deserve to be behind bars. We're certainly giving people jail sentences and heavy fines and going after the assets that have been acquired through this illicit trafficking is, is what we need to do. So they do feel um, the, the pain from this uh, in terms of the, the penalties and we have also written into this agreement under the UN Convention Against Transnational Organised Crime, we've looked at combating but also preventing. So we've added into that agreement commitments to work on demand reduction, to work across civil society and other sectors to assist with demand reduction. So what we've tried to do in this legal agreement is have commitments not just on what conduct should be criminalised and how we deal with that, but how we can prevent it by dealing with demand reduction 
etc. So getting both ends of the spectrum, as, as you were highlighting there, from source to destination, so we'd cover it all. Don't you think it would be really good, and you could really help here, to collect up some of these stories of success? Because when people realise there is a way around, you can change people's attitude. There are these places that look after the animals. They can sometimes be rehabilitated. Then people are much more inclined to say, okay, it can be done. Let's go ahead and do it. It certainly works with youth. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Jane. And balancing that story of the scale of the threat and the sort of nasty things we're seeing against the positive things we're seeing with those individuals who are involved in law enforcement, involved in protecting animals that have been rescued from illegal trade. Also, some great stories about what's happening in source countries where you see, I've been to Northern Rangelands Trust, the Leo Conservancy, I'm sure you have as well, into Garumba National Park in DRC, Akagera in Rwanda. There's such fantastic stories there about where the land is being well managed with local people being employed, local people deriving the benefit. It really is a fantastic story of people and wildlife benefiting. So there are good stories. We just need to keep scaling them up because we have good things happening. We need more good things happening. So always that balance between sounding the alarm, but also saying, you know, that there is hope because if we can do more of this, then, you know, it's going to be good. So we can work together. We can. And we've shown it. You know, we have examples. It's not in theory. Yeah, it's in practice. Roots and Shoots began in 91 and it began in Tanzania. It began with high school students. So a lot of them are actually in decision-making positions. We've had incredible examples of, of them actually, you know, forcing through change and raising awareness and standing up to corruption even, which is pretty amazing. The environment minister in DRC right now was Roots and Shoots in primary school. You know, it has begun to work. No, it's fantastic. And I think what's great about Roots and Shoots is we see different generations coming together and you see the benefit experience and the wisdom of people like yourself blended with the enthusiasm, the creativity, the innovation of the youth. And when you can say we have a shared responsibility to look at the future of wildlife, you know, across generations, you get so much more. Um, And I remember, you know, just in my lifetime growing up in Australia, seeing shifts in attitude to wildlife um, and native vegetation. There was like a 180 degree turn. There was a shift in attitude and it was a generational shift And I'm working with a lot of people at the moment, younger people, and their passion and drive and commitment to wildlife and nature conservation is absolutely inspiring. It really is. That gives me my most hope when I'm, you know, carrying on because we have to and giving people hope because really hope is absolutely key. Without hope, you just become apathetic. What's the point? I mean, what would be the point of you trying to fight for this legislation if you didn't hope that it would actually work. You wouldn't be doing this if you thought, well, it's useless. No, exactly. And, um, I mean, we think that we have to change wildlife trade laws, wildlife crime laws, a lot of other things we need to do as well, protect wildlife better at source, etc. But these changes are needed. And so we are, as a group of us, including Jane Goodall Institute Global, as one of our champions, pushing forward with these suggestions 
it's going to be difficult. It's never easy changing the international legal framework, but we believe it needs to be done. And because it needs to be done, we're working to encourage states to pick it up because why wouldn't you do that? You know, it's going to be difficult. But if I look at back in the 1970s, where we had the first UN Stockholm on the human environment, that was hard. Negotiating CITES in 1973 was hard. Negotiating the Biodiversity Convention in 1992 was hard. So things can happen where there's enough momentum and there's good reason to do it. And the fact that it's hard or it'll take some time, or it'll be challenging, is no reason not to do it. Yeah, you just become obstinate and say, I'm not going to let them defeat me. No way. <laughs> no, we're going to draw inspiration from you there, Jane. And I think that there's a whole group of organisations that have very different views on many, many different things, but we all agree with these objectives. We have to change our relationship with nature. We have to protect wildlife. We have to prevent the next pandemic. The next generation should not be left with the legal framework that we have when we know it's not fit for purpose. So, yeah, a great group of inspiring people who are all working towards common objectives. You know, there's one other thing which we're working on trying to do. So, when you're educating, especially youth, but adults too, you know, there's one way you go, you show the cruelty, you show the suffering of an elephant. People don't actually like watching that. They tend to turn it off. But to get together some of these things that you find now on YouTube, you know, there's so moving when you see how elephants will rescue a little one and see how intelligent they are that really gets into people's hearts and then they want to save them. Those sort of things, that gets to you. Mm. It really does. One of the good things of the IPBS report, the global assessment, uh, was quite a sobering report, as you know, about you know all the consequences of... Uh, of our actions over many decades. Um, and it predicted that we could lose up to a million species over coming decades, but then it had those critical words, unless we change course. Yeah. And we can change course yeah. if we choose to. There seems to be a shift in people's heads through COVID-19. Almost the light went on a recognition that this interrelationship with nature we've got wrong. We need to recalibrate it. I just hope that people hold that thought because we tend to have short memories. And I remember SARS was, you know, a big issue. It went away and then 10 years later, sort of people have forgotten and got back into bad ways. Here, you know, we've seen the consequences of this pandemic. We are seeing a shift in attitude, but we have to institutionalize some changes as well. Otherwise we have short memories and in 10 years time, we forgot about it and we get hit again in 20 years time. So this idea of feeling what we feel from COVID-19, seeing what we see, recognising the science and then institutionalising changes. So 10, 20, 50 years, we have changed our way of doing things and haven't just fallen back into old bad habits. I think this was the kind of last push because it's affecting our health mm. and our economy. Mm. Whereas climate change is actually a far greater threat, but oh well, it's nothing to do with me. That's happening over in the Amazon. I'm here in the UK. But actually, we're beginning to realize more and more and more people. People are realizing it's affecting our weather. It's affecting the weather in the UK. It's affecting this, that, and the other. 
And of course, as it warms up, so you get diseases coming in from different animal and plant species. And we're seeing it more and more and more. And this thing about our health is the last push to get people to really change, don't you think? I agree with you entirely, Jane. I, I do think just in the, the various people I'm interacting with, I, I think this COVID-19 has been that thing that's pushed people over the edge and it's finally clicking. The other thing that I hope there's a recognition, I start to see it as that people recognise that we have to break out of these silos. You can't just think, I do biodiversity, I do climate, I do development, I do public health, I do security. You know, we have to see a convergence here. And if you invest in nature, the return on your investment in nature is massive. Biodiversity, climate, development, public health, security. You know, I think breaking out of that sense that wildlife, you invest in wildlife for wildlife. Yeah, we, we do that. But the benefit of doing that is huge for everyone. And the amount of investment is just such a tiny, tiny fraction of the budgets of, you know, health or security or development. So for what is in the scheme of things, a tiny investment, we can take our biodiversity, combat climate change, get good development benefits for rural communities, protect our public health and provide security. That's where we need to be. And maybe COVID-19 has pushed us over the edge. Time will tell. So, John, if we are thinking about these changes that we've been talking about and this huge change in legislation that's so important, what is it that governments, local and on the ground, what, what can they be doing now to help this process along? Sure. Well, at the international level, we need to amend our wildlife trade laws, which is CITES, to build in public and animal health criteria. We need states to get behind that. So we need countries to say that they agree with that, but countries are going to be influenced by what civil society says, by what the private sector says. So we really need to mobilise private sector and civil society to say that's a good idea. At the local level, uh, we really need to ensure that we are investing in nature. We've lost so much revenue through tourism in so many parts of the world. We need to invest in nature across public health budgets, across development budgets, security budgets. They need to direct some of their budget into protecting nature because the return on that investment is a return on climate, public health and development. So we need to see budgets open up for nature that haven't traditionally invested in nature. If we get enough public momentum I think the governments will, will see the benefits of this because governments are obviously going to be responsive to, to their communities. So in short, we ask all civil society, business sector, industry associations to generate momentum uh, within and between governments to amend wildlife trade laws, amend wildlife crime laws, to make sure that we can avert the next pandemic and bring these wildlife crimes to an end. Yes, and educate young people in school and university to understand the issues. Thank you, John. I've certainly learned a lot from talking to you. So really, thanks for joining us on this HopeCast. I think it's been fantastic. Jane, it's been a great honour and a pleasure to have the opportunity to spend so much time with you. And uh, I'm a huge admirer of everything you've done for so long. And Roots and Shoots is fantastic. Uh, getting that younger generation mobilized and inspired about wildlife. I think it's incredible and it's uh, going to stand us in good stead and it's going to make sure that my kids grow up on a better planet than it would otherwise be. 
and next time we meet face to face. I'm very much looking forward to that. I've been sitting in this chair <laughs> in this room for far too long. Me too. <laughs> Recently, there's been increased international commitment to fight wildlife crime, and it's now time to join forces. The Jane Goodall Institute is part of a new collaborative alliance, the Global Initiative to End Wildlife Crime. No organization on its own, no country on its own can effectively stop the illegal wildlife trade that knows no borders. Only through our collective efforts and continued collaboration can we stamp out this cruel and devastating trade. Together, we simply must. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Inar Gaukusha is our producer. And Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler. Follow Dr. Jane Goodall and the Jane Goodall Institute on social at facebook.com slash Jane Goodall and at Jane Goodall INST on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to share about the Hopecast tagging JGI and hashtag Hopecast for a chance to be featured. To learn more about Jane and JGI, visit janegoodall.org and support our work at janegoodall.org slash donate. The Hopecast is a movement of hope turned into action fueled by each of you. To become an official Hopecaster and support the podcast, visit janegoodall.org slash Hopecaster.